Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 120. This is the question and answer session, part one, from our Chicago seminar. We'll be posting part two next Monday, and the following Monday, we'll have another new podcast for you. So keep it here every Monday to get your latest fix of Barbell Medicine. Now, without further ado, let's get into the questions. All right. Thank you guys so much for coming to the Chicago Evanston Q&A here at the Barbell Medicine Seminar. It's awesome. Um, If you have to leave, sorry to see you go, but uh, make sure you see Leah on your way out. Uh, And if you have further questions, you can ask them on our forum, uh, barbellmedicine.com. We're pretty active there. We pretty much answer any question that's been submitted that's not completely asinine. So you can just ask us a question there or our Facebook group. Uh, again, we answer pretty much every question there. There's like 15,000 people in that group right now. Thanks for starting that. And they'll answer your questions, or we will. Uh, and if that doesn't work, I don't have anything funny this time. So we'll just get right into it. Uh, let's see. Is there a beneficial upper limit in skeletal muscle mass from a health standpoint? Hmm. Well, okay. You already have an answer for this or no? I've thought about it. Okay. Well, you can start. Okay. I'll finish. So this question is basically asking, can you get too jacked from a health standpoint? And I think that you know this kind of thing has been studied a whole lot more on the low muscle mass end of the spectrum. It's rather difficult to recruit a large cohort of super jacked individuals and follow them prospectively over the course of their lifespan. Um, so we don't really have a generalizable cutoff that we can say that, no, you know, if you keep adding any more muscle, you're likely to actually suffer worsening health as a result. Now, this is all in the context of non-chemically enhanced individuals. There are certainly many cases of individuals suffering premature disease and death in the professional bodybuilding scene. Um, You know, heart failure, liver issues, things like that. Um, They are indeed extremely jacked and that did not appear to protect them from an early demise, but that is more likely to be a reflection of the things that they did to get there. I think that for most people who are just, you know, training raw natty, so to speak, it is unlikely that you're going to get so jacked that you actually start to suffer negative health consequences from it. This is not to say there's not diminishing returns. Obviously, there's a point at which you would have a hard time demonstrating ongoing health benefits to adding more and more muscle mass, but uh, that's not really a concern that I have for anybody who's non-enhanced. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a few things. One, people will try to like make that delineation using the fat-free mass index, the FFMI. It's a calculator you can plug in your height, weight, and body fat. Ideally, it's an accurate body fat, otherwise you can get some uh, spurious readings. In any case, they'll say, oh, this person is over 25 on this FFMI, which means like at that point, there's no way they're natty. And then, you know, that, that's a waste of time. Don't do that. From a health standpoint, here's what I don't actually know. Uh, and it, there's many things, but this, I, on this particular question, I don't know. <laughs> Let me list the things. Let me list the things. <laughs> uh, the skeletal muscle mass index is another way that uh, they've been sort of quantifying the amount of skeletal muscle mass that people are carrying in the literature. I've not seen any studies per, uh, that associate very high levels of skeletal muscle mass index to health. So I, I, don't, I don't know. There, is, there are studies where they look at people with high BMIs um, and uh, individuals, like, so over 30 uh, on the BMI, that have high lean body mass versus individuals with BMIs over 30 with low amounts of lean body mass and look at certain health outcomes, and they're uh, uh, roughly the same, which suggests that if your BMI is greater than 30, and you're, even though you're carrying a lot of lean body mass, you're probably also carrying a lot of adipose tissue 
Uh, and I think this is especially true if you are, in fact, on Natty. Um, and so my kind of feeling on this is that if your BMI is under 30 and you're, you know, real, real jacked, I don't think you're at any increased risk of health problems from being too, too jacked. In fact, I think it's probably protective, uh, particularly if you aren't using uh, performance-enhancing drugs. If your BMI is over 30 and you're not using performance-enhancing drugs and you're real, real jacked, I start to wonder, like, what your how much uh, adipose tissue that you're, you're carrying. Um, and I would look at your waist circumference as sort of an indicator of that. Um, and then if your BMI is over 30 and you're real, real jacked and you are using performance enhancing drugs and you're not carrying a lot of body fat, then I think that the performance enhancing drugs are probably increasing your risk of bad health outcomes that you, and you have no additional protective effect due to your muscle mass. So a little more complex, but. Yeah, fair enough. Have you seen the skeletal muscle mass index? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't get it. I don't find it super interesting. Same. <laughs> okay, question two. Is there an increase in risk for tendon rupture or muscle injury with sarcopenia, similarly to individuals with osteoporosis and fracture? Ooh. Yeah, I thought this was an interesting one. The, deal, the differentiation here, the, the, the deal is that when we're talking about fractures in the context of osteoporosis, most often they're, invol they're involving some type of trauma, like even as simple as a fall. It's less often that individuals with osteoporosis will just suffer, suffer from a sudden fracture out of nowhere, just like while they're sitting there. Um, so most, more often these are related to some form of traumatic injury. It's just usually like a low level trauma, something that wouldn't normally fracture somebody's bones. Of course, if you have any kind of a traumatic injury, yeah, you're gonna be at some degree of risk of muscle injury, tendon injuries. I don't know of specific data looking at tendon rupture and like muscle tears in the context of individuals with sarcopenia, but what I will say, and the main reason I included the question, is we do have plenty of evidence that individuals who are generally very inactive, which also tend to be individuals who develop sarcopenia, so low levels of physical activity, um, they definitely have a higher risk of developing tendinopathy. So problems with the tendons uh, they can be related to repetitive overuse issues. That's the context that we more often see them in like our trainees and the context that I've experienced tendinopathies myself is from you know, repeated kind of overuse syndromes, but there's also kind of underuse tendinopathy. And so like if I did imaging of tendons in all my patients who are in the hospital and who are sick and generally less active, I would find probably a lot of undiagnosed kind of tendinopathic changes um, in that context. There's also a bunch of other kind of metabolic influences on um, the health and, and function of people's uh, tendons. So individuals with diabetes are at higher risk of tendinopathy and a bunch of other medical conditions that can, that can play into this. So I think there are there is reason to believe that there's higher risk of tendon issues in individuals with sarcopenia to the, the extent to which that kind of like matters or alters the way I think about or manage it is not really because this is an underuse kind of tendinopathy and I want them to get them to use their tendons, stimulate adaptation and increase their, the tendon capacity will increase their muscle strength, muscle size, bone density, all the good things that we want to happen in individuals with sarcopenia osteosarcopenia, osteosarcopenic obesity, all these different kind of syndromes. Yeah, well the benefits of training outweigh the, whatever increased risk there would be of tendon issues yep. in that population. Yep. In addition, I would argue that sarcopenia is in and of itself a state of muscle injury, depending on how you define yeah. muscle injury. Chronic muscular insufficiency is kind of how I think about it. <laughs> Boom. Yes. Cool. Question number three. If y'all are so strong, why aren't you fighting ISIS? <laughs> <laughs> It's a fair question. Fair, fair question. Yeah, maybe we should be. I, look, any time that we have put, like said anything with a potential political bent to it, yeah. we have suffered. 
you've suffered. Correct. Austin, right. Austin has found a way to detach himself like he's on a steady drip of ketamine. He dissociates. <laughs> he's not even in the body anymore, and he just is going through the motions. Well, yeah. somehow... I get sucked into these things because I'm like, why are you mischaracterizing my position? <laughs> also, why are you, you know, unaware that, you know, the data says this, this, and this? And they're like, oh, stupid liberal data. And I'm like, well. <laughs> so there's a few reasons we're not fighting for ISIS. Well, there's many reasons we're not fighting for ISIS. Well, the question was, why aren't we fighting ISIS, like, yeah. against them? Yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. So there are many reasons we're not fighting for ISIS. <laughs> the reasons why we're not fighting ISIS is because if we can't even say something like socioeconomic status has a, plays a major role in healthcare outcomes, <laughs> like, what do you think we could do with ISIS? Seriously. Anyway, yeah. We, our followers uh, would drop to probably, you know, half of what we have right now. Maybe, or the demographics would just shift. Yeah, it could be, right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> Any general recommendations for someone looking to cook, eat, and grocery shop more diversely slash less rigidly, assuming poor culinary skills, little time, and little money? Uh, one of those things is going to have to change. Um, and, and, you know, there's no simple answer to this because effectively all the resources that you have are, are zero. Well, there's not enough financial resources to actually uh, shop uh, for potentially like uh, uh, foods that uh, are part of a health-promoting diet. We don't have culinary skills to actually prepare these foods, and you don't have a substantial amount of time to not only engage in preparing them but also learn how to prepare them. So it's like, all right, something has to give. So during like uh, some motivational interviewing, I would see if there's any way to get my foot in the door in any one of those things, uh, whether that be, you know, can you allot 30 minutes on a given evening to watch this YouTube tutorial on how to, you know, learn how to slice things or dice things or saute or something like that. Um, and if no, it's like, okay, so that's not an option. So then we, al we already have to like start moving towards more expensive food options. So I actually think like learning how to cook drastically can lower your food costs because you learn how to do things that, were, that you have to pay more for to be pre-prepared. Uh, as far as grocery shopping goes, I would learn to shop seasonally, particularly things uh, that you can uh, buy from either uh, like locally sourced areas uh, or, or things that, uh, that you can also buy in bulk. Those would both be ways to save money. And then as a final part, the less processed the food is, the less like pre-packaged, pre-prepared, you can tend to buy a lot more calories for a cheaper, at a cheaper price point, provided you have a fridge to store those things in and you have the time to prepare those things um, later on. If you can't prepare them later on, you're just going to throw away food, which would ultimately be loss of money. So mm -hmm. um, tough problem to have. Uh, and so if, if none of those options were available to an individual, leveraging social support to like help somebody uh, on this journey uh, would be useful. Uh, what did I, well, I'm trying to remember the first cookbook I actually used. You know who what? It was Tim Ferriss. Oh boy. I know. So Cody Miller. The four hour cookbook. That's right. He, he gave me this book for like Hanukkah one year and he's like, you like to cook, man, right? And I was like, not, not particularly, but okay. And anyway, I had this book that uh, was collecting dust on my shelf, and I finally opened it, and it was like basically, you know, how to cook. And the first few pages were all this gear to buy, which I'm psyched about. Mm -hmm. So huge Amazon order. I was like, I am ready. And then uh, that's how I started my, my uh, cooking journey. I would not recommend that. The book's trash. Uh, and all the gear he, recommend, he recommends is also trash. Why? Because he's not a chef. So why are you buying his book? That's stupid. Um, no offense, Cody. Like, it was fine. It's a fine gift. <laughs> uh, 
But, but the point is, is if you have somebody uh, that you're counseling like that who doesn't have time, uh, financial resources, um, or skills, you have to find a way to get your foot in the door somewhere. And it may be uh, by leveraging other folks to help them out there. Yeah. In general, I agree. I think I, I mean, I included this question. It actually draws off of what you were talking about the last one <laughs> with ISIS. <laughs> not so much with ISIS, but oh. the ideas around um, some of the potential, you know, individual barriers that people can have and socioeconomic barriers, educational barriers, things that maybe you may not have thought are a thing that some people deal with, whether it be the skills, the time, the financial situation, access to a fridge to store stuff, access to cook things to cook with, pots, pans, you know, depending on where you're living, et cetera. Those can all be difficult situations to, to deal with. So sometimes you have to get creative if you're helping people or hopefully they have some social support that they can enlist. Yeah. Why are old fashioned oats so much better than instant oats on every conceivable metric? <laughs> Related, you have mentioned a preference for single ingredient foods, often in the context of weight loss. What are the reasons for this and how much does it matter? So let me just start out by saying this. While I will not concede that old-fashioned oats taste much better than microwavable oats, I will say that the difference in taste quality, even if it were better, is likely small, whereas the cleanup costs are so much higher for making old-fashioned oats and also the time investment way higher. Definitely not worth it. I just make old-fashioned oats in the microwave. And they're fine. That's... Awful. I don't, want to, I don't want to know what the inside of your microwave looks like. I assume it looks like, because Lorraine hasn't been there for a while. This is so, true. So I assume general badness. Okay, as far as my preference for single ingredient foods, this is a way to try to get people to uh, reduce their food quantity by focusing on food quality. It's a perfectly viable approach uh, and a perfectly reasonable approach to get people to do that, uh, particularly if you feel like counting calories, macros, or otherwise uh, uh, you know, f tracking food uh, quantity directly is inappropriate for them or not something that they want to engage in right then. So you could just focus on single ingredient foods. So by definition, you're going to have less processed foods, well, no processed foods. People are going to have to learn to cook, prepare foods, prepare meals, um, and grocery shop to reflect that. All of those things I think are good strategies. The issue is I think it's a big chunk to bite off for a lot of folks. Um, so they'll ask, well, what are single ingredient foods? I'm like, foods with only one ingredient. So like chicken would be a single ingredient food, you know, whereas this pre-packaged pre sort of already pre-cooked chicken breast that has all these seasonings and flavorings and is with a bunch of other stuff is not a single ingredient food. Um, so if you have somebody who's not familiar with how to grocery shop for fresh foods or doesn't have the financial resources to do that or doesn't have the resources at home to store, prepare, all these things, then that advice is inappropriate for them. So you might have to do a test run with, uh, uh, with somebody, ask them, okay, I want you to eat single ingredient foods. You go to the grocery store, what are you gonna buy? And see, allow them to kind of it's reflect like a teach back, back to you. method kind e of deal. Exactly. Yeah. And so having additional resources of like grocery store lists, uh, sample meals, potential sample, sample cooking instructions can all be useful, particularly if you don't have a lot of, t uh, a lot of time to spend with somebody on a single session, but you want to get them started. And then in follow-ups, you would kind of see what sort of problems uh, they were having. So that's why I, I do that. It's not a universal sort of recommendation. If somebody has other ways to control their food quantity, I think they have a lot more laxity in what they can actually consume. So if they wanted to have the Pop-Tart or you know, the ice cream with 35 different ingredients, many of them scary sounding, I'm cool with that because if that's part of an otherwise health-promoting diet, I think that ultimately doesn't matter. I'm gonna catch flack on the internet for that, for sure. 
That, that ultra-processed food, though. <laughs> okay. Uh, when you say hypoxia is a catabolic stimulus, how much so? At what level do we see this? Do people at higher elevations have less muscle mass? Oh, it's pretty interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. So I dug further into this because primarily, when I, I, I discussed this in the sarcopenia talk, where people who have low oxygen levels, in the context I'm usually seeing them, it's individuals who have COPD or smoking-related lung disease, and they may live with a low oxygen level, maybe like, you know, 87% or something like that, and they need to wear oxygen all the time to keep it up into the 90s. Um, there's a pretty interesting area of research uh, on this particular topic as it relates to altitude. There's actually a fair amount of controversy around it too. Uh, there was one paper that I found uh, called Human Skeletal Muscle Wasting in Hypoxia. Is it a matter of the hypoxic dose is the title for anybody who's interested in looking at this very niche area of <laughs> research. Great title. But yeah, uh, the idea that they proposed was that there is there may be a relationship between the actual amount of altitude elevation that you're at times the duration that you're at that altitude, meaning the total uh, kind of amount of kind of hypoxic exposure at a given altitude. Um, there is some research uh, looking at this at varying altitudes. Now, if you're looking at a city like Denver, for example, that's a mile high, it's only like 1,600 meters or something like that of elevation. Um, most of the effects that have been kind of examined on this, they don't really seem to manifest until you're well over 3,000 meters of elevation, 4,000 meters of elevation, 5,000 meters of elevation is about as high as you can like possibly get on most areas of Earth that are inhabited, so that's extremely high. Um, but definitely as you get into those higher ranges, 3,000, 4,000 plus, uh, there does seem to be a pretty consistent effect that individuals who you know, spend significant amounts of time or definitely who live at those levels carry less muscle mass on, uh, uh, skeletal muscle mass on their bodies. This is actually thought to not be pathologic, but they actually think that it's adaptive, that it's an, uh, an adaptation to living at that altitude that has a number of potential uh, effects. One, it would be like reducing the distance that oxygen has to diffuse to get into certain tissues. Another is just overall reducing how much uh, kind of oxygen utilizing tissue there is on your body. So it kind of eases the metabolic burden. This is all hypothetical stuff, but it does appear to be true that spending significant amounts of time at those very high elevations is associated with a decrease in muscle mass. Uh, you may be wondering about athletes who go up to altitude for certain periods of time for training. Uh, that altitude also tends to be below this threshold. So it's typically around the range of like 2,500 meters or so for, for a lot of time, for a lot of athletes or, or less for most of them. And it's not thought that this is going to have much of an effect on skeletal muscle mass. Um, the more, again, for the rest of us who don't live in these very sparsely inhabited places at 4,500 meters of elevation, the more common scenario is gonna be somebody who actually has like a medical condition that results in low oxygen levels, like uh, a very, varying kinds of lung disease. And there's not really a well-defined threshold of like what percent oxygen saturation is gonna result in this. And I think we're unlikely to ever find one. It seems to me that it's gonna be more multifactorial. In other words, somebody, like you can have, have patients who have COPD and who are on oxygen continue to smoke. Right, that's fairly common, and individuals in that situation, the smoking itself is gonna exacerbate this, the low oxygen will exacerbate it, physical inactivity will exacerbate it, the fact that they're taking prednisone is gonna exacerbate it um, for varying reasons, so a lot of this is difficult to tease out, but having low oxygen levels, if I had to make up a number, then any amount that requires you to be on oxygen, I would probably wanna treat that uh, sufficiently, but I just found this kinda interesting that people at real altitudes do actually lose muscle mass and live yeah. with less. Yeah. That kind of makes sense from the metabolic burden, but not that that's well fleshed out. The interesting thing, uh, what I think about, uh, besides 
people with chronic lung diseases um, who may be at risk for having lower uh, amounts of muscle mass uh, is individuals with obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, there's also some evidence that they have uh, are more anabolically resistant, lower peak rates of muscle protein synthesis. Now, whether that's due to the actual sleep apnea itself or the accompanying uh, obesity, unclear. Uh, that tends to be a relationship we see quite often too. So, is it uh, the ox, the you know, the desaturations overnight? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's certainly not helpful. Yeah. So, I, if I was going to try to go, I wouldn't go to a hypobaric uh, oxygen chamber just for for max gains. Yeah. Okay. All right. Patients often are coming to therapy because they've reached a state of helplessness. What are some strategies you've used to get them out of that state of helplessness? Yeah, this is context uh, specific for sure. I think the overarching theme here is trying to find some ways to win, um, particularly easy wins uh, that you can do fairly readily. So a lot of this is like what Austin uh, has called, uh, referred to before as this violation expectation. So effectively they expect they're gonna fail no matter what they do. And so if you get them something that they actually don't fail and they succeed on, um, and they're agreeable to, that would be a win. So you have people who say, for example, like they can't cook. Right, and they've tried to cook before, and it never works, and they don't, you know. And I'm like, would you be willing to try again? And you give them some sort of recipe, a lob, a lobber, where they yeah. can just knock it out of the park. <laughs> I did it. And, it, and it doesn't mean that you fixed it then, but you've at least started the process to, uh, uh, on the road to change. You actually see a lot of this helplessness sort of uh, description and, 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 and management data in, uh, in obesity counseling. Um, so effectively, one of the predictors of you, of an individual failing a diet is having been on many different diets before unsuccessfully. Um, so like the more times that an individual has failed, the lower levels of patient activation, lower levels of self-efficacy they have, and the worse they end up doing long-term. So the idea would be, all right, let's not just immediately jump to another diet. You don't need another plan right now. We need to address what were those obstacles, what were those barriers in the way of you being successful before, and how do we give you the tools, resources, skill set to navigate either around those things or tolerate them, because it's unlikely that those barriers are going to have spontaneously disappeared, right? So uh, easy wins at first, something that may even sound like very rudimentary, okay? Uh, but we want them to have some sort of positive experience first, and then also uh, trying to tackle the self-efficacy bit, because that's going to be very, very important in them being able to manage this on their own and not having those feelings of helplessness, rather taking ownership or at least seeing, the, seeing their role in this process. Yeah. I read this question kind of through the lens of pain in a physical therapy context. I'm not sure if that's the intent, the, the context that it was intended in, but um, I think you were right in saying that this is context dependent as is almost everything that we're talking about. But what I mean by that is my first uh, move here is going to be to talk to the person and try to figure out why they feel helpless. What have they been through? Because they probably feel that way for a reason, and that reason is probably reasonable given everything that they've been through. So I want to figure out what have they been through that's led them to that conclusion. They may feel that way because a doctor told them something about their pain-related condition that they are now of the opinion that this can't be fixed on my own. So there's, there's research on this, for example, uh, uh, some of the interesting studies in, in the shoulder world. They'll look at um, uh, shoulder impingement uh, as a diagnosis. And they'll have patients who are given an explanation for this diagnosis where they were told, oh, you have a bone spur that's sticking down into your tendon and like eroding the tendon. And then they interview this patient afterwards after they get sent out to of the office and referred to physical therapy. And the patient's like, I don't see any possible way that exercise or physical therapy is going to get rid of this bone spur that's digging into my tendon. 
how could that possibly work? Which, given that explanation, yeah, you're right. The good news is that that explanation is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, right. And you can improve this with exercise, and you know that's actually good news, but that's not the information that they were given up front. If they had been given that information, maybe that would have led them to actually see a potential role that they can play in their condition. There are, maybe, there are a whole host of examples of how somebody can come to this conclusion of helplessness and why they feel that way, but that's what you have to figure out up front. What have you been through? What has your experience been? Why do you feel this way? And then completely agree with the idea of expectancy violation, meaning they expect that there's nothing they can do. If I can find anything that can get my foot in the door and show them, hey, you did something. And then when they successfully do that one thing, even if it is a lob, I will hype it up like crazy. Right? You just like, you know, <laughs> right. disproportionate to the level of accomplishment that it was, I will hype it up as the best news in the world, even if it's the simplest thing. Um, I'm placeboing them, basically, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, that, again, ideally we'll get the ball rolling and we can get them uh, more engaged in the process. So that might help build some confidence as to maybe the next step that they'd be willing to try in this process. And trying to engage them as much as possible is the idea, um, because feeling a sense of autonomy is super important. And individuals who have this sense of helplessness, they have lost their sense of autonomy. They don't feel like they have a role to play. So I wanna put them back in the driver's seat. It can take a while to get there, but that's kind of the first step is identifying why do you feel this way and how can I kind of wedge myself in there to, to uh, crack this. Yep. All right, that's a wrap on our Chicago seminar question and answer session, part one. Part two is gonna be up next Monday and we hope you come back and tune into that. If you have a second, why don't you give us a rating and a review wherever you're getting this podcast from. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. And thanks again for tuning in. See you next week. Perfection.